I'm Andreas, I'm Antonopoulos, and this is Wrecked. Hello and welcome to Wrecked Podcast. I am Bunchu alongside my esteemed colleague and co-host Crypto Chamber. And boy, do we have a special one for you today. How you doing, Chamber? Doing pretty good. I'm excited. I got seven cups of coffee in me. I am raring to go. <laughs> and we have a very special guest on with us today. Uh, if you don't know him, you're not doing Bitcoin and crypto, right? Uh, Mr. Andreas Antonopoulos. Andreas, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, no problem. We uh, we really appreciate your time. We're excited to chat with you, uh, pick your brain, get to know you a little better here as well. Um, so I'm going to get right into it. Uh, you mentioned right when we were talking before that uh, you just got back from Uruguay. Uh, a, was it a crypto-related trip? Yes, the uh, um, Latin America Bitcoin Conference. This was the seventh in a row. I've been to six. I only missed one due to uh, an unfortunate family emergency. Uh, it's probably the best uh, conference in crypto, in my opinion. Wow. Uh, what makes it so special? Well, it's authentic. It's about uh, adoption. It's uh, for people who actually need crypto in places like Argentina, Colombia, uh, Chile, um, and Uruguay this year. Uh, it's in a different city every year throughout uh, Central and Latin America, and it's it's a real genuine thing. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Um, I think that you know you make a, a good point. It's about people, or it's for people who actually need crypto. So, what does that mean to you uh, versus you know what you've seen kind of in the crypto space uh, in your experience? Well, what it means is uh, that crypto is a technology that gives people independence, it gives them empowerment, it gives them freedom. And it's it's not really necessary in a lot of uh, Western nations where we already have banking institutions uh, and money institutions that more or less work. Now, I fear that it's going to become more and more necessary in developed nations too because the traditional financial system is fragile and is uh, shooting itself in the foot with a machine gun. Um, but, but other than that, uh, right now, today, uh, this technology is necessary in Venezuela. It's necessary in Argentina. It's necessary in Mexico. It's necessary in Chile. Um, it's also necessary in a whole bunch of other places around the world. I think the hotspots for this technology are Southeast Asia, South America, and Sub-Saharan Africa. Yeah, that's super interesting. Um, so before we kind of get into that stuff a little more, I mean, there's, like I said, you're very, uh, you're one of the biggest names in the crypto space, uh, evangelist for Bitcoin and, and mass adoption. Yeah, definitely like the biggest name. It's, it's 15 syllables long. I mean, <laughs> no one can pronounce it. That's what you meant, right? Did, yeah. Did actually, did I do a good job? I feel like I, I did. <laughs> you did, you did. <laughs> um, but like, how did you get here? So I know we, you know, we, uh, you know, give or take on origin stories, but I'm very interested to know how you first encountered Bitcoin and uh, crypto and, and how did you kind of get to where you are today, where you are, you know, you're traveling the world and talking about mass adoption and Bitcoin and all that stuff. How did you get here? 
Well, I was primed for it, really. Um, I'm a geek. I've been a computer geek since I was 10 years old, and I've been programming and using and learning computers since then. I ended up doing my undergraduate degree in computer science and my graduate degree in data communications networks and distributed systems around the beginning of the 90s um, in England. And I, at the time, I was fascinated by cryptography and very much involved in the early um, cypherpunk movement that was emerging with attacks against PGP by the U.S. government, with um, um, very, very sketchy conferences about privacy that nobody really knew if we were going to win those early battles, and meeting amazing people in the industry like David Chalm in, in 1993, 94, um, you know, the co-founders of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, um, many of the very early pioneers in the cypherpunk movement. So uh, I grew up with this stuff and uh, I continued to work in information security and distributed systems on internet technologies my entire career. I did public speaking extensively and I missed the beginning. I just missed it. And at some point in 2011, I read about it and dismissed it completely because I thought it was about gambling. Mm-hmm. And then in 2012, I read about it again. And this time there was a link to the white paper and the white paper pushed every button in my head um, because I understood the technology. I understood the backgrounds. I understood which problems were unsolved. And it just all fell into place in a moment of epiphany that completely derailed my life. That's interesting. So is there a pinpointed aha moment that, uh, you know, other than just reading this, like, what was your real aha, this is something I'm going to spend and dedicate my life to? Oh, it was literally page one of the white paper. Really? That's page one of the by the time I finished the white paper, my life had already been derailed. I quit every I was a freelance consultant at the time. I've always worked self-employed and I uh, quit every one of my clients. I buried myself in in reading and writing and coding for four months. Uh, lost a bunch of weight because I stopped eating. <laughs> I became completely obsessed. Um, and then uh, started showing up at uh, Bitcoin meetups, Bitcoin events. Uh, I begged to get into conferences to do some speaking. Um, and, uh, you know, a year and a half later, I was... Uh, I was invited to do the Joe Rogan show, which was a big turning point oh, wow. in terms of people getting to know who I was in a broader audience. Uh, and I, it just got catapulted from there. Didn't expect it at all. I, ju- I just wanted to find a way to do something interesting in this space. That's interesting. Uh, Joe Rogan's huge. I didn't even know that. I uh, Shame on me. I didn't know you were on that show. I didn't oh, know I, he was interested in that. Wow, that's interesting. I, I've been four times on the show, yeah. Wow, that's um, really cool. Chamber, do you listen to him on Joe Rogan? <laughs> I, I knew of at least two of them, so I think yeah. I, I think I listened to two. I didn't realize it was four. What a what a treat. You've got six more hours of us geeking out over that. that Absolutely. You've missed, That's so. awesome. That's great. So um the question I you know, so about the white paper and about Bitcoin that kind of got you so excited about it. Um, you know, I think Bitcoin is something that is easy to understand but also very complex. So, you know, I want to ask this question to you and like what is Bitcoin to you? What is Bitcoin? Bitcoin to me is um money as a communications protocol. It's the ultimate obstruction of money where you have a communication protocol that uh communicates value across the internet 
without appeal to authority, independent verification, or um, external state. It's just uh, pure money transmitted as a protocol. And from that, I immediately realized that, you know, money, of course, is just the first application. And in essence, what we're going to do is completely reboot the internet on top of this platform and create the internet of money on top of the internet, um, which became the title of my first um, book in the space, the internet of money. And to me, it's a, it's a revolutionary state of affairs. It's the first completely transnational borderless non-nation state money uh, that is open, accessible to everyone that doesn't require vetting or authorization that is neutral as in net neutrality to source destination uh, value and purpose. Uh, it doesn't care what you're doing. It only cares about routing payments. And that is uh, immutable and censorship resistant. These properties make it a massively disruptive technology that is suited for scaling up society in the 21st century and beyond. And it's going to have an enormous impact on the world. So that being said, Obviously, we are 10 years or so into Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. And, you know, we've obviously come a long way since 2009. Uh, what are, you know, what are you seeing in your travels and uh, just in, in everything that you see day to day are some of the best kind of routes that we have towards mass adoption because, or, or do you think we're close or do you, where do you think we're going to be going in, in that sort of direction? So, I'm not necessarily aiming for mass adoption. That's not the goal for me. I don't think mass adoption of a, of a single digital currency as the one and only world standard for digital currency is, I, I don't think that's the goal. I don't think it's necessarily desirable as the goal. To me, the most important thing is that we uh, enable people to make a choice and not everyone's going to make that choice. We, just like everyone has the option to use the internet to give themselves freedom of communication, independence, access to knowledge, et cetera, et cetera. And some people use it to make videos about flat earth and log on to Facebook and give away all of their privacy. You're not, we can, you know, as the expression goes in so many different languages, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. Right. right. The goal, the goal here is not, to have everyone use this because not everyone wants to use it. And in fact, uh, a monopoly situation where this is the only choice is the opposite of what I hope for. That's it. What I hope for is a choice of freedom. People have the freedom to choose to use this technology if and when they need it. Um, and no one can stop them from doing that. And that means adoption where it's needed. Um, and, you know, as an empowering technology, a, a technology of self-determination, uh, individual sovereignty, um, and protection of individual rights, uh, against oppressive, oppressive regimes, um, uh, mob, mob ruled, uh, banks and, uh, organized criminals with banking licenses, uh, corrupt governments, dictatorships, et cetera, et cetera. That's very interesting. Chamber, you got a question here? Yeah, I do. Uh, you, we were, you know, you just mentioned uh, talk of the individual and, and power to the individual. And one of the, you know, one of the big debates I know I have just in, in general is 
is the is the value of the individual greater than the value of the group? Uh, so is is giving the individual that freedom um, at the expense of the you know the group is is that what, what, how do you see that uh, you know that relationship working? Yeah, that's a tricky question because then you get into kind of political questions, and I think people tend to project onto Bitcoin their favorite politics and see it as reflecting their political worldview. Um, as far as I'm concerned, you know, when you look at money as a as a form of speech and expression, as the communication of value to other people, um, then the, the the ability of the individual to exert and assert that right um, and to assert the rights of privacy uh, is is paramount. Um, when we talk about the group, of course, there's different scales of groups, right? right. If, if, if you look at the group simply as uh, the state as an extension of society, uh, that's no longer simply a group. Correct. That is a concentration of power uh, that often is uh, in direct opposition to individual uh, rights, human rights, civil rights, constitutional rights. Um, but at the same time, you know, what is communication of value if you have no one to communicate it with? Peer-to-peer means, person-to-person means building community, community of value, community of trade, community of commerce. And money is one of the glues that holds society together because if we have the ability to trade freely amongst each other, we can go out and seek those relationships that matter to us. We can build uh, the social groups we care about uh, and we can nurture them with, with trade and interaction. And money plays a very important role in that. So empowering the individual to seek out uh, other people they want to group with is not a contradiction at all. Uh, in fact, it's, it's, the, it's the purest form of um, a society that is entirely voluntary and it is based on voluntary interactions with groups that don't necessarily share geography, affinity, religion, race, nationality, or any of these other artificial constructs, but instead come around uh, a, a set of rules that they agree on voluntarily. And those rules, which in this case are the rules of consensus, um, allow them to choose who else they want to interact with. So more more of a uh, the individual uh, is harmonious with the group in, in this sense. Yes. I mean, we are social species, right? Uh, the worst thing you can do to a human is isolate them. So, but if you can't select which groups you want to associate with, then you, you don't have, uh, your own independence and freedom. No, I, I agree a hundred percent. Now, obviously we are all big fans of Bitcoin here. Um, and, uh, you know, you'd mentioned, you know, page one of the white paper, you were hooked. What are some of the, pitfalls uh, that you see as, you know, as maybe detrimental to Bitcoin? So I've, from the very beginning, I've been talking about um, two fundamental pitfalls that I see in Bitcoin. The first one is insufficient privacy within the protocol. So fungibility and privacy are big problems. Um, There are a number of uh, technologies that are being investigated in order to enhance privacy in the base layer of the protocol as well as in additional layers like the Lightning Network. And here we're seeing some of the fundamental philosophical differences between Bitcoin 
and uh, many of its offshoots and forks, as well as many of the other uh, currencies that are out there. Uh, some of them are aggressively courting um, their surveillance state and and basically kissing kissing the ass of the surveillance state uh, in order to gain favor. Um, and you can't have a system that is open, borderless, neutral, censorship resistant, immutable um, that people can choose to use if you don't have privacy. Uh, there, there is the fundamental issue of if, if rights are not just about asserting them, but also being able to assert them without being unfairly penalized for asserting them. So if you don't have enough privacy, anything you do on the blockchain can then be brought back and used to condemn you. Um, then you effectively don't have that, that right. Privacy is a fundamental construct. Uh, it underpins all of the other rights because it gives you the ability to assert your rights without undue consequences. Now, um, that's the one weakness of Bitcoin that I think we need to work hard on, which is why when it came to debating the priorities, the strategic priorities of what needed to be fixed on Bitcoin, um, I realized that at some point privacy was more important than scaling because we have to get privacy rights on the first layer. We can do scaling on the second layer, but it's much harder to do privacy on the second layer alone. Um, the second big one is the community around Bitcoin. And I know that a lot of people have very strong opinions about what Bitcoin is and, and the, the politics around Bitcoin. Um, I'm concerned that um, unless we see Bitcoin as a universally accessible, open and neutral system, um, if we keep putting purity tests and litmus tests and keep saying that some people are not uh, correct about their appreciation of Bitcoin and trying to bundle together with uh, Bitcoin uh, a whole bunch of other political ideologies that have nothing to do with the principles of Bitcoin. Um, we, uh, we risk alienating a big chunk of the world and delegating this technology to irrelevance. So I, I think it's important to go for a broad community uh, and let people project whatever their worldview is onto Bitcoin. It doesn't matter. It's neutral. That's the whole point. So I think there's a danger of getting the community fragmented. And I know that some of that at least is deliberate, meaning that one of the easiest ways to undermine a grassroots movement like this and a community like this is to sow dissent inside the community by planting provocateurs and undermining um, unity, right? And that's that's dangerous. And I think it's worked uh, to a great degree in Bitcoin in creating a lot of unnecessary drama. How do we solve that? <laughs> um, <laughs> I think by not, not falling into the trap of, um, of jumping to conclusions and playing along with the drama and getting drawn into it and trying to keep a more, a more neutral, a more open perspective and remembering that the, the real risk here is that we head into the 21st century with centralized surveillance digital money being the only option because we screwed this up. Um, and that's the real risk, not whether 
um, our decentralized uh, uh, surveillance resistant money has a big blocks or small blocks, or whether you're a vegan or a meat eater, or whether you're, you know, <laughs> pro-choice or pro-life or whatever other um, issue of the day we want to affix to, to crypto. And, and there's a concerted effort to make, make us distracted and, and go into that. So I try to stay neutral. I try not to play these games. Um, talk about technology, not people. Ideas, um, not groups. Sure, and I, I'm interested to hear your thoughts then on kind of you know what you just spoke about. I feel like was specific to Bitcoin, but the you know the entire crypto community, you know, is is kind of rampant with a bad name from scammers and things like that and meaningless projects trying to scam people out of money. How do, how do we work on, or, or what do you see out there as maybe the stigma of crypto as a whole, you know, just, I guess, secondary to Bitcoin itself, obviously Bitcoin can kind of be separated out, but it's still part of, you know, this stigma of the crypto place that is not always a good thing. Yeah. And, and that's, um, that's critical. So there, there's a lot of opinions on how we deal with that. With, with great power and freedom comes enormous responsibility, right? When it's your coins, your keys, uh, it's your responsibility. It's your responsibility to protect yourself, to educate yourself, to avoid scams. There is a tendency or almost a desire to, to delegate that responsibility to someone, someone who can tell us, who are the scams and who are the honest ones, someone to do the vetting for us. And part of that is this habit we have from the traditional systems um, where we've always relied on third parties to do the vetting. And the problem is these third parties accumulate enormous power by doing the vetting for us. You know, don't worry, the Security and Exchange Commission will keep you safe by keeping scammers out of the system, right? They'll make sure that only accredited millionaire investors can invest and they can only invest in accredited um, investments and companies. Um, of course, things like that have enormous weaknesses. Uh, Bernie Madoff, for example, who was actually, uh, among other things, the head of the regulatory group regulating his industry. <laughs> um, you know, so if you give that authority to someone else, um, that's, that's the honeypot for the scammers. That's the position they want to take over, right? Mm -hmm. um, and we've seen that happen in our own community too. Uh, crusaders for the truth and people with enormous popularity eventually uh, turn turn to the to the greed and launch their own shitcoin or scam or whatever. Um, the bottom line, I think, is when we cannot give that responsibility to other people and we should not take on that responsibility. Um, people ask me, do you think this is a scam or that is a scam or the other is a scam? I'm not an oracle. I'm not a prophet. And I'm, I'm not going to take that responsibility out of your hands. You have to figure that out. When you go into and create a completely new open system of commerce, um, that puts an enormous responsibility on the individual uh, to make good choices and no one's going to come to your rescue. Uh, no one's going to bail you out. If you decide to put your money in an exchange 
invest in a scheme that promised you 10% a day returns um, or asked you to recruit three other people to be your lieutenants so they can recruit three other people to be their lieutenants. You know, we have to learn the hard way to identify Ponzi schemes and pyramid schemes and uh, dodgy investments and opportunistic uh, people and scammers in this space. That's what an open financial system means. Uh, there is no daddy to save us. Um, it's up to us. You know, the existing traditional financial system is very paternalistic in that way. We, we expect to anoint someone who's going to be um, fundamentally good in their behavior and will give us the correct answer. Uh, and what that does is it absolves us of responsibility, but it also, it also causes people to become less educated and, and less informed because they feel that safety net is there for them until it isn't. Interesting. That's interesting. Um, we, we were talking about, uh, you know, scams and shit coins and whatnot. Um, now, in your opinion, um, will altcoins, uh, if any of them, have a place in the future? Absolutely. And I've said that since 2014. And every every few months, a new batch of people is surprised to find out that I'm not a maximalist. <laughs> that I've always believed that there is a, a space for multiple different niche applications. And the reason for that is because you can't have, in my opinion, one thing be everything for everyone. Um, even if you assume that rational economic actors will will choose the system with the hardest, soundest money and on a monetary basis, one wins resoundingly. Um, the, the, the thing is, that's not how humans work. So uh, we, we have a, a, a significant shortage of rational economic actors out there. <laughs> so for, for reasons that, that involve um, affinity to different cultures, ideas, uh, the need for specific applications, the need for flexibility in those applications, etc., we will end up with uh, a whole range of, of diverse chains, coins, tokens, protocols, and applications. Now, keep in mind, that doesn't mean um, many of them will have any economic value or that they'll be good investments. That's not what I'm saying. Right. And I'm not saying that's the future I want. It's simply recognizing that not only is that the future that's happening, it's actually the present. Um, you know, there was one, then there were 10, then there were 100, then there were 1,000, then there were 10,000. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> what? Watch the trend. <laughs> do you uh, do you upset a lot of people when they find out you're not a maximalist? I feel like a lot of people would think that you are. <laughs> yes, I, I upset a lot of people. I'm I'm not particularly concerned. Um, <laughs> I'm 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 simply observing what's happening, and I and the messenger gets shot um, <laughs> as, as if that's that's what I you know. I would I would very very much like the simplicity of one dominant protocol and system of money that is perfectly interoperable and solves 99% of all the application needs. Um, I simply recognize that one, that's not how humans work. And two, that's definitely not how humans and software development work. So I'm recognizing that that's unlikely to happen. Now we will have some systems that are highly dominant within their sphere. I expect to see a power law distribution, a long tail with a few bunched up, big players that dominate 80% of the market, maybe two or three that are dominant. And, and you're going to see that Pareto distribution replicate itself at every scale and in every niche 
um, so that you know just Bitcoin uh, is likely to remain the dominant form of currency and reserve currency um, because of its sound money and high security characteristics. But there will be others, and uh, there will probably be thousands of others, most of which have no value at all. And then you look at another domain like smart contracts, and you know they're fighting their own maximalist game as well, because uh, while they're you know barking up the uh, Bitcoin tree, going here comes the flipping Ethereum can do everything that Bitcoin can do. Um, there's a dozen little things behind them barking at Ethereum going, we're coming for you right. and we're, we're going to do the flipping on Ethereum. And again, the truth is it's likely to fall into a Pareto distribution where Ethereum dominates 60 plus percent of the smart contract uh, space, e- even though it has a much smaller percentage of the overall crypto space. And, and that will replicate itself at every level. So, um, you know, I, I'm okay with that, and I'm okay with the fact that there will be a lot of crap, and there will be a lot of irrelevant things, and there will be a lot of things without economic value or that are just illusions. But there will be also a lot of experiments where people will try different variations in order to find which fits best for um, a specific application. So I look at it from a biological diversity perspective. These things do not operate in a vacuum. They operate within an environmental niche that is defined by the application and user base. And they will specialize in each one of these environmental niches. And every choice that is made to specialize in one niche makes them unsuitable for another niche. I did a specific talk about this called The Lion and the Shark describing two apex predators who nevertheless can never compete and the fictional cage match you do between a lion and a shark that is determined entirely uh, based on whether the cage is in the water or not. Uh, (laughs) You know, the wimpiest shark still wins in the water and the the wimpiest uh, lion still wins on ground because even though they're both apex predators, even though they're both perfectly um, evolved for their specific niche, everything that makes one perfect for its environment has already made it much, much less than perfect for the other environment. So to give an example, all of the choices that Bitcoin has made until now and needs to continue to make in order to be robust, nation-state resistant, decentralized store value, medium of exchange money, um, makes it very, very unsuited for smart contracts. Mm-hmm. And vice versa, everything that Ethereum does for smart contracts uh, requires flexibility and fast-moving protocols, etc., which make it very unsuited for the for the conservative role of of long-term, secure, robust money. Um, and that's okay; they don't have to compete. Yeah, that's super interesting. I think that's a a nice, a good take on it too, because I think that there is, you know, benefits to both uh, both sides of that for sure. All right. So we got one more question for you. Then we're going to go into uh, the the fun stuff here. So I I just want to bring this up because it's actually kind of, I think, how we ended up getting you on the show at some point anyway. Um, but the I think it's important to talk about. So uh, a couple of weeks ago, you had put out the tweet asking about podcast recommendations and all of that stuff. And yep. uh, then I think you got you caught a little backlash from a follow-up tweet about, 
you know, basically none of the suggestions having any diversity to them. So I wanted to ask you about the importance of, you know, that diversity in crypto and, and why it's so important and how we can get to a space where it's not uh, every podcast out there is some two bearded white guys. <laughs> <laughs> one has glasses, one does not. <laughs> yeah. So I, I see diversity as a, a multifaceted thing, of course. And um, there's, there's issues about uh, diversity of economic background, diversity of language, uh, gender diversity, race diversity. Um, geography diversity and every other form of diversity you can imagine. However, it is clear that um, in, in a system that delivers consistently the same demographic where a minority of 10% of the population, the human population, uh, dominates 90% of the voice, power, and presence in, in this space, uh, if you think that is the outcome of meritocracy, that's even a more toxic belief <laughs> because then, then you believe that supremacy earned it through merit. Sure. Uh, I, I would like to believe that it's not an outcome of meritocracy and it's not certainly not an outcome of their, uh, you know, a specific demographic being more interested, more motivated, more curious, more risk-taking a lot of it has to do with all of these tiny, tiny, tiny um, biases that over a lifetime add up uh, to a significant advantage. And I, rather than talking about discrimination, I'd like to talk about it from another perspective. As, as someone who is the beneficiary of this massively institutionalized system of affirmative action that's, that raises people like me, gives them second chances, then third chances and fourth chances and fifth chances and sixth chances and seventh chances <laughs> and, and forgives their worst mistakes and um, assumes that they will succeed and, and gives them every opportunity. I'm the beneficiary of that. Um, and so when I arrive at a point of success in my life and I have a bit more latitude, I choose to use that to think about who really needs this technology and how do we reach the broad, broad, broad audience that we need to. And of course, I'm quite happy to do um, podcasts with, with um, everyone. In fact, you know, it's not like I stopped doing podcasts with white males in finance. Uh, <laughs> you know, 90% of my podcasts are still that demographic. Right. Uh, you know, no one was pushed to the back of the bus. Let me put it that way. Yeah. Um, Instead, what I did was I made it clear that I wanted more um, different audiences, different podcasters, different shows. And you know what? It worked. After receiving about 30 proposals for podcasts that were in the standard demographic, uh, which I absolutely considered, they went into the queue and I went on a lot of those shows and I continued to go on them. I then received 30 or 40 recommendations from people um, from a very diverse set of backgrounds. And I did several interviews already, and I'm doing more. And I learned a lot. Um, I learned a couple of interesting things, including I uh, recently had uh, two journalists from Venezuela uh, who told me that they had previously attended conferences but had never asked for an interview with me because they didn't think that they would succeed. Uh, they didn't think their audience was big enough. 
They didn't think I'd be interested in speaking with them. They didn't think that they had good enough questions and sophisticated enough questions to ask me. Um, and they were therefore reluctant to waste my time. But when they saw these tweets, they decided to give it a go and they came in and they asked me questions. And as expected, they had spent hours preparing. They were better prepared than 90% of the interviews I do. Because here's the flip side of this. This affirmative action program I I talk about, what it does is it elevates mediocrity uh, (laughs) at an astonishing rate. I can't tell you how many interviews I've done with mediocre interviewers who think they're God's gift on earth, who've done no preparation, have no questions, um, basically waltz into an interview and um, just flunk it completely. Don't even bother to, uh, to, to, to figure out who they're talking to. And, and, and these two um, women from Venezuela who had done their work uh, delivered some of the best interviews that I've done in the past several months, and they thought they weren't good enough. They thought they shouldn't ask. That's the difference. And it worked. So I'm taking some of this input. I'm making some changes to my website, uh, hopefully to make it clear uh, that I am actually open to smaller audiences and smaller podcasts. I'm, I'm open to helping other people build their audience and, and that there is no stupid questions. There is, you don't have to come with a super sophisticated question. You just, you just have to be prepared and understand what we're talking about. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a professional. This is my, my job and I, I do my homework. I come to these prepared and I expect that from, from people who are interviewing me. It's, it's not much to expect professionals to act as professionals on both sides of this microphone, right? Sure. So, um, so anyhow, um, yeah, I got a lot of shit. A lot of people got very, very <laughs> upset. Their 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 feels got hurt. Um, <laughs> they did. Uh, Forty seven retweets, three hundred eighty six replies, five hundred seventy five likes. It was a it like blew yeah. up the internet for a couple hours. <laughs> and you actually for a couple of days. And what you didn't see was the death threats that I got on oh, my wow. direct messages. Um, the homophobic slurs, the, um, come on, strange, the nasty, nasty comments, the, um, just, and, and also the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of positive responses that were in my direct messages in private because they didn't want to engage with, uh, these two nasty voices, but wanted to say, thank you for saying that I'm going to reach out. I, I really appreciate you um, talking about this issue. Yeah, and I so, thought it was important to ask because of that. I, I think it is important, especially when we're talking about something like Bitcoin, right? which is supposed to be kind of all-inclusive and neutral. And so I think that's an important point. I thought I was going to, when, when, when uh, Andreas, when you were talking about uh, you know, these, these other shows, I thought I was going to morph into the Jordan Peele sweating gif right in front of you. <laughs> I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's um, funny. But I think, yeah, I think for, uh, as, as far as uh, the, you know, the, the prepared questions, uh, you know, the serious Bitcoin talk, I feel we've, we've accomplished what we, uh, this is, 
this I think gives us uh, our 2020 license for uh, being an official crypto podcast. Going into <laughs> well, most no, of our I'm, shows. I'm, I'm very glad. Thank you for for preparing for this, and I'm very glad you you've done a great job. And I I wasn't referring to you, obviously. No, I know. <laughs> uh, that would be hilarious if you were, though. <laughs> so we we do have a couple more questions for you, just for to get our audience to know Andreas a little better. We do this with a lot of our guests. Just a couple rapid fire fun type. <laughs> questions uh you know just to get your personality out there chamber you want to start with the first yeah one? i sure do um so we've had on the show um actually a pretty good amount of people that have been involved in crypto uh, movies uh you know john mcafee is coming out with one uh, you know we've had a few other guests in in that industry and we always like to ask the question um you know when that when that cryptocurrency you know that that scorsese cryptocurrency movie comes out and it's going to win all the awards um and and uh, you know have all the major players in it. Who would play uh, you in that Oscar award winning movie? The the answer to that changed recently. All right, um, <laughs> and yeah, it used to be Kevin Spacey, but fuck that guy. <laughs> yeah, fuck that great. guy indeed. <laughs> oh, um, man. But now it's John Malkovich, and I hope oh, he does it. I, I hope we don't hear uh, and and both of them primarily because of the hairline. <laughs> that's funny that yeah that's a good one um all right how about this one if you could and and you're not allowed to cheat by saying uh your own but if you could run any business in the entire world what would it be and why any existing uh, business um i think i think it would be some kind of education business around um, open source, open education, and things like that. It would probably be technology related. Interesting. What was the last book you read? The last book I read. Um, hang on, I need to give me a second. I need to look it up. I, I read uh, two or three books a week. Yeah. Um, that, that's crazy. I don't know if I read. You read. You read Archie comics as well. <laughs> <laughs> I also get through about two or three of those a week. <laughs> um, all right. The last one was uh, randomized by Andy Weir, who's um, who's the author of The Martian. Oh, um, okay. You know, the, the movie yep, that yep. was done with... Yep. Uh, it's a series of uh, short stories. Interesting. Cool. How would you rate that one? Is that uh, is that a recommendation? Oh, it was it was great. But uh, you know, I, I I I love books, so I I could give you ratings all day long. Um, <laughs> all right, we got two more for you. I two, you yeah, I have another one. This one's again. I like I like celebrity stuff. So, um, if you could pick any celebrity to make dinner for you tonight, who would that be, and why? Oh boy, why are you doing this to me? <laughs> I'm not. I'm not that into. I'm not that into celebrity. Um, it could be as easy as I, a celebrity chef. Can I make dinner for them? Yeah, sure, absolutely. absolutely. Okay. 
I, I'd make dinner for Greta Thunberg. Okay. Oh, Ooh. awesome. Because <laughs> that, that poor kid has received more shit than, than anyone of that age should receive um, for being passionate about her future. I like that answer. Um, all right. Last one here. This one's my favorite. Um, if you had to, if you had to, I'm not sure if you're into this or not, but what would be your go-to karaoke song? Oh boy, no. Um, I, <laughs> um, it would be, hang on one second. I've got to look up the specific name. <laughs> my, my favorite answer we ever got to this was the one we had when we asked Charlie Shrem and he told us he goes to karaoke every Saturday night and he does Lincoln Park. <laughs> Uh, I I was uh, walking my uh, daughter to school today and uh, this is obviously a morning interview we're doing and uh, I told her I was I was doing a recording and I said you know I'm I'm interviewing this gentleman called Andreas and she looks at me she's like you're and she's in in the first grade by the way she's like yeah you're interviewing my boyfriend I said (laughs) what I said what She's like, my boyfriend's name's Andreas. Oh. <laughs> so, That's really so funny. I said, no, I don't think so. I think this is a different Andreas. <laughs> it's it's either Greek, German, or Brazilian most he's, of the time. Yeah, he's Greek. I've I've uh, I've met the parents earlier uh, earlier today. Okay. Yeah. No, they're, so they're, it's going to be uh, Megan Trainer's no. Oh yes. To, to the new lyrics, uh, which are about ICOs. Yeah. <laughs> That's a great answer. When they pitch me to be an influencer or advisor on their project, my name is no. My number is no. My answer is no. Won't pitch your ICO. Won't pitch your ICO. I to the C to the no, no, no. Yes. Oh! oh, my God. Yes. That's, that's what we it. call. That's a, that's a sound bite. That's a sound bite right there. Mic drop. All right. That, and that puts us right at the time we are. Want to be respectful for your time. That was awesome. So thank you so much for uh, coming on. We really appreciate the conversation and obviously your time as well. Um, so thank you very much. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. Thank you, guys. Take yeah, care. Th- Bye. Thank no you very much. Thank you so much. So that was our interview with Andreas uh, Chamber. What'd you think? Well, I'm just, you know, I'm just happy that we are now on the same level as the Joe Rogan podcast. We've been striving for this. For we've been calling it for a while. I mean, I think, I think, you know, at least we're a quarter of the way there. If you've been on Joe Rogan four times, been our, you know, we're at least twenty five percent of the Joe Rogan show. So. Hey, look, McAfee doesn't even want to go on Joe Rogan anymore. He only comes on our show. Yeah. So what's up, Joe? <laughs> what's up, Joe? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what? Uh, what was, uh, my favorite part was obviously the very end where he's saying about ICOs. Are you kidding me? I, I'm like, oh, this is great. I hope this is recording because I'm going to cut the shit out of this thing. And this is going to be great. But overall, we hope you enjoyed our conversation with Andreas uh, a little smarter than we typically are. So um, yeah, like I said, I think. I think- I think that gives us our our license for 2020 that we can call ourselves a crypto podcast without talking any crypto for the entire rest of 2020. That's it. Perfect. All right. That's going to do it for us. Until next time, don't get wrecked. And that is financial advice. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. 
You can help support us by giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and become a wrecked patron by signing up for a monthly tier on Patreon.com. That's Patreon.com forward slash wrecked podcast. Don't get wrecked.